0: Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 205 of the Speaking Club podcast. To kick off the show today, I want to share this from funnyjokes.com. A door-to-door vacuum salesman manages to bully his way into a woman's house in the countryside. He gets in there and he says, love, this vacuum cleaner is the best thing since sliced bread. And then he empties a bag of soil over her carpet. She says, oh, I do hope that that's gonna come off. He said, I'll plug that vacuum cleaner in and then I promise you, it will suck every bit of soil and dirt out of your carpet. And if it doesn't, then I will lick it off the floor myself. And she said, do you want to catch up with that? We're not connected to the electricity yet. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey there, I'm coming to you from my new office. So apologies if it sounds a little echoey today. We need to get some furniture in here. Um, it's a bit bland at the moment. How are you? i I tell you what, I'm very excited because we just passed 200,000 downloads of the Speaking Club. Amazing. We've doubled downloads in just over 12 months and all organically. And I want to take a moment to say a big thank you to you for helping make that possible, for listening to the show, for leaving rating and review if you've done so, and for sharing it with other people. And I also want to say a big, big thank you to all my wonderful guests across the 205 episodes that we've had. And also lastly, but not least, to the fabulous Emma Hopkins, who helps me get the show out there every week. It's been an absolute blast. And here's to the next milestone of half a million. Let's do this. Now, one other thing that I wanted to bring to your attention before we get into the interview this week is that the price My speaking club live weekly coaching membership is more than doubling from Sunday, 16th of January, and it's going up from £47 a month to £97 a month. I know, right? It's a bargain, isn't it? So, if you're planning to focus on developing your speaking or marketing this year, then do go and check it out before close of play on Saturday, 15th of January. It is a safe space to test your messaging and content practice your speaking, humor, storytelling, and to get feedback and coaching from me and also input from the other members of the speaking club, which is very valuable in itself. And you can find all the details out about the club, what else you get with it and all sorts at saraharcher.co.uk slash club. Cool. Okay, let's, let's get on with this show. So my guest today is Marcus Kauke. And for 17 years, Marcus did sales all wrong. But then he discovered a different way to sell that not only led to amazing results, but also created a brilliant customer experience too. And he's a 35 plus year sales veteran who teaches sellers that they get further when they learn to collaborate, not manipulate and serve others instead of serving themselves. And over the years, he's helped companies generate in excess of wait for it, 6.5 billion pounds in additional and repeat sales. And he works with organizations to align the efforts of their marketing sales, customer success, channel sales, and account growth teams, so that they create a safe risk-free environment for their clients and customers an environment in which they can enjoy the seamless, frictionless buying experience throughout their lifetime as a customer. And not only that, he's a prolific contributor to LinkedIn. He has his own podcast called The Inquisitor, where he's brought together over 4,000 years of collective wisdom, which is amazing. And uh, also, he is the founder of a f- Sales, A Force for Good, and co-author of a book called Making Channel Sales Work. So in summary, he's done a lot of stuff. So if you want to increase your sales, then you'll love, love this conversation. Let's get started. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Marcus Kalki. Hello. Great to have you here. This is gonna be a fun conversation, I think. Now I've, I've literally just had a chat with you for your podcast and the tables have turned, mwahaha, and uh, <laughs> now I've got you. So I want to ask you um first question, which is when did you realise your future was in sales?
1: Well, if I'm being honest, I always wanted to run a business, but sales was always a little bit grubby um, and because I didn't really apply myself, bit lazy, not the brightest light in the house, um kind of ended up in a sales role um but the, actually my first real taste for it uh, I got a job selling uh tap fittings and pipes and books at an MLM conference um and um the, they used to have these meetings and uh I, I was just I was one of the ancillary suppliers um and are working for one of them. And i managed to upsell someone from a 50 pence meter long piece of blue uh, pipe uh, to 136 pounds and 86 pence. And I just asked questions, and I had an absolute blast. Um, and I, I was, um, you know, lauded for uh, doing such a great job. The only problem was when he came back the following week, he wanted a refund. Um, but I, I got a taste for it then. And I did it all wrong for, I don't know, 17 years. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh, God, the level of stupidity and the thickness of skin that's required to do that. <laughs> um, and But I, I don't think I'm wildly different from many salespeople who just sort of, um, you know, they're, they're still paying off a jar of Nescafe from, um, you know, that they bought in Safeway in 1986. Um, that's how far back their debt goes and and yeah, you know, most sales people struggle they 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 don't have control um precisely for the reasons that they think they are get they're trying to get control
0: well that sounds like can you explain a little bit more about that what do you mean in terms of they think they have they they don't have control but they think they do
1: well um you get taught that sales is a numbers game yeah it might be at the commodity end and you have to do a certain volume of activity. Um, but the dumbest treat it like a numbers game and the smart ones work out. Well, if I can increase my accuracy and I can pinpoint the, the right people without involving manual labor, why would I not do that? Um, So using AI technologies and things like that to to help. Um, And then to define a clear, ideal customer profile and understand their journey that they go through. So you can identify the points where they're probably going to struggle and will need help. So you can meet them at those points. Um, And you can show up and be helpful. Um, you can be valuable to them you can be relevant you can be timely as opposed to turning up and saying you know sarah you're worth 25 grand to me um let's work out how i can take that from your bank account
0: yeah i'm
1: with you
0: so no,
1: use sorry go on no well no go on go on i'm curious
0: no, no, well, I was just going to say, so you're talking about, and when you say AI, you mean using technology such as chatbots and so on to, to ask the right questions at the right time? Or are you talking about overcoming objections? What, 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 what are you talking about there in terms of help being helpful?
1: I, I'm talking about most sales and marketing activity is a, a blanket approach, There is an attempt at personalization at scale, which ends up with dear first name um, and other such monstrosities. And they're all long and wordy and explanative. explanative. I I don't know if they explain stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And um, they're self-congratulatory and they don't really tell a story I can engage with. Yeah. Um, As opposed to... Um, well, one of my clients told me a story this uh, last week, um, and they do wholesale change at scale in large organizations, and they, they tackle um, a problem which is endemic in virtually every large organization, which is managers have a tendency to solve problems, and the problem with managers solving problems is that 40 to 60 percent of their workload is other people's work so then they get run ragged they create learned helplessness they disempower yada 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 um so th- he was telling me this story about a senior manager 30 years at the royal mail and um they'd been brought in to turn around a, a very important uh, program and there was a lot of skepticism and pushback. Um, but within a couple of weeks, um, they, they have these clinics where people can come along and you know, talk about their experience and um, you know, uh, crow about their successes and all the good stuff that you know, people want to have in, to be engaged. And this 30-year manager said, I was so proud of myself this week because um, one of my team came to me with a problem. And instead of offering a solution, I realized now was a great learning moment. So I asked the question, and my question was simple. You know, what solutions have you come up with so far? And that led to three or four more questions, and she ended up coming up with three good solutions of her own. And the result that we agreed she would work on was to come back with a plan and a decision as to which one she'd followed. Two days later, she came back with fully costed, fully mapped out plans, identifying exactly who needs to be involved, who be on side, off side, and so on. Um, and so I asked her a few more questions, and she decided on her own solution, which she had total control and ownership of. And my joy was short-lived when I realized she's been on my team for three years, and that was the first time that I'd ever tapped into her imagination, her creativity, her expertise. And I'm told every, t- every day, 16 to 20 of these opportunities present themselves. And that was a moment where I had my epiphany, that, that's where I vowed that the rest of my career at the Royal Mail would be building a legacy where I would be asking questions and helping my people. Now, imagine that at scale with 500, 5,000, 50,000 managers all at once, Mm. the impact that that would have on your customers, your people, the community, what you could do. I mean, how good could that get?
0: That's brilliant. Yeah. And it's, Oh, well, you know me, I'm sold on the power of stories. Uh, But what what I want to ask you is, 17 years in, you've been doing it wrong. What caused you to have the epiphany that you were doing it wrong and that there was a a better way, a different way to do it um, and that set you on the trajectory to where you are today?
1: I bought a... No I didn't I was given a box set of CDs Of a trainer called Guru Ganesha Halse, um Who has a hilarious story uh, He always used to call himself the Shoe Guru um, So he's a half Irish, half Italian um, Parents from uh, Vaudeville um, yeah. Who ended up selling He was the first person to sell espadrilles in California So he was a proper hippie um, <laughs> And uh, converted to Sikhism, and um, he did this training session for a company that hired me. And on my first day, um, the marketing manager said, "You got to listen to these CDs, read this book." And I put this, I put them in my inbox for about three, four months, and then I took them home one day, and my God, um, it was just an epiphany do everything the opposite to the way I'd been doing things. And um, what was interesting is I I realized instantly um, that that was intrinsically right. I couldn't put my finger on why. Um, So I started adopting it uh, with no coaching, big, big uphill struggle. Um, And my awful sales plummeted. I knew I was onto something. And then all of a sudden, they went from one in 20 to nothing, and then from nothing to one in three, one in two, and then pretty much 100%. If they qualified and they met my criteria, they bought. And then I started to double my prices and double them again and double them again. So back in 2003, 2004, I was getting paid £1,200 to book an appointment Wow. Which mm-hmm. was well cool um, Because everyone else was maybe getting 50, 100 And I just thought, this is really cool And so then I got sucked into this uh, journey Into trying to understand people uh, The psychology of human behaviour um, Why we're basically predictable and barking mad um, And creatures of dysfunction, habit, drama
0: So so if you could sum up, like, it it might be difficult, but in one sort of sentence, (laughs) what was the heart of the message of those tapes Uh, that you listened to? Uh,
1: to One word, (laughs) optimism. That was what that question was. It taught me that if you want someone to make a big agreement, you need to make lots of little agreements along the way. So the leap to the final decision is a single step. It's not crossing the Grand Canyon.
0: So you're not talking about soft closes here, or are you just in terms of...
1: I don't know what a soft close is. Explain what that is.
0: So when you're having a sales conversation, there is a, a suggestion that you should get people to start saying yes. And then they're, no. they're having smaller agreements, which they that's not what you're talking about.
1: Yes and no. Um, right. I'm not keen on the yes staircase, which is what I learned. So it's actually about reaching agreement that both sides are happy with. Mm. Um, the, there's a really, really good reason for wanting to do this. You are going to hit impasses and roadblocks and obstacles and conflict. Um, it's a hell of a lot easier to come back when you've got lots in common than when you don't. Um, when you have a lots indifferent, um, then at best they will be indifferent. Um, and you create the conditions for them versus us. Why the hell would you make your life harder? By making anything about you. Mm. There's a fabulous human being, a guy called Charlie H. Green, uh, who wrote The Trusted Advisor, um, Trust-Based Selling, his best book. And in there, he teaches the trust equation. And it carries a lot of weight. Trust equals... Reliability. So you show up, you do what you say you're going to do in the manner you said you would to the standard you said you would when you said you would do it. That's reliability. Credibility is you can do the job that they invested in to get you in. Now, those are kind of table stakes, aren't they? That's the I should bloody hope so line. Yeah. If if it goes below that, you're thinking, "Ah, no. So that's just to turn up, that's that's your entrance fee. The next operator at the top is intimacy. But how do you earn intimacy? Well, the first thing you have to do is if you want someone else to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first. If you want someone to trust you, you have to give trust. If you want someone to be motivated, towards the same objective as you, you need to find out what the hell they want. Um, This is not about turning up and vomiting yet more features and functionality. And um, for God's sake, do not show a photograph of your HQ. No one cares. They never cared. They never will. They don't care about you, your company, your product. They're wondering why the hell are you here? Can you help me? And they they actually want you to be there because senior people, c level people, they're talent scouts. They like bring. They like being the hero and bringing a great supplier in. The CFO, the CEO, the head of purchasing.
0: You you and I are on exactly. Funnily, just literally in the last last week's episode, I was talking about you've got to be vulnerable first to get them to open up to you. Exactly, we're all. I think we're on the same page around this. You know, I talk about audience intimacy in relation to speaking, but also in terms of because your talk is a marketing opportunity, but it is absolutely being led by the audience, being led by the the customers. Yeah, I think you you nailed that in terms of uh, getting that across.
1: There's another concept which is really important. I I know you wanted to bring it up, but it's timely now, Mm -hmm. uh, which is this concept of buyer safety.
0: Yes, and, and
1: again, I have to give credit to Simon Bowen, who's been a massive inspiration to me. Uh, we're, we're co-authoring a book on strategic alliances at the moment, um, and uh, he was the first person to catalyse that thought in my mind. Um, what, what does buyer safety mean to you, Sarah?
0: In my parlance, I don't know if this is correct. So it's de-risking the sale, partly. Yep. So, so you, I think my understanding of this situation is that whenever we buy something big or little, there's a potential risk of loss of status in some way. And so what we have to do is, if you're selling or marketing, is de-risk that purchase so that people feel safe um, to buy it. So that would be any sort of guarantee or pay on results, all that sort of, lots of different ways. I don't know if that's what you're talking about.
1: To a large extent I am, but, but bias safety to me means that they need to feel protected mm. in our relationship. If they see us as an adversary, then the walls go up and the walls go up because the amygdala gets fired because their lower brain, um, is telling them that we represent a threat. Mm. And so this is where we need to be ready, uh, to reverse risk. Mm. Uh, and um, we need to be able to meet them where they are. Mm. And that that's what I, the point I was making earlier, that, you know, you meet them at those points of peril um, because you understand their journey well enough because you think as the customer. Yes. You don't think about the customer. And again, I have to give credit to Colin Shaw and to Mark Schaefer, who always talk about thinking as the customer. They are... Um, you know, prime examples of people who really get inside the head. And another person uh, is Martin Lindstrom. Uh, Martin spent, you know, pre-pandemic was spending 270 days living in other people's homes, observing them, interacting with his clients, companies, products. Um, And speaking to them, observing how they uh, engage. That depth of um, understanding, that level of curiosity that's what I think a great salesperson needs to give that sense of safety. Because they're gathering the information, they're building their questions to deliver insight. And they're reversing risk by turning up at those in crucial moments. And most important of all, they're not offering shallow change, they're offering deep transformation. Mm. You're not necessarily going to get this if you're selling floor cleaning supplies, but even then, if you think about it and you really start to think around the world your customer lives in, and the users and the impact it has, and the, you know how um, you know particularly with uh, the pandemic, how important cleaning is, it suddenly becomes a strategic conversation.
0: Yeah.
1: How do you get people back to work? How do you create a sense where those people feel safe? It's not important enough that they they are safe. They have to feel it. They have to believe it.
0: All of those things are absolutely true. And I think they don't, they're not just true for sales. I think they're true for copywriting. If you can get in your head of your customer to that degree, uh, and also for speakers as well, you know, in terms of your audience, back back to sort of your audience. Thank you. That's brilliant. And we probably have covered this. I don't know, but I'm just going to ask a question just to be hundred percent sure. I heard you describe sales as broken. Mm. Is that what you're talking about? And is this yeah. the fix?
1: It's part of the fix. What's broken in sales is a wicked problem. A wicked problem is a number of interrelated, interdependent and some degrees, codependent problems uh, that run in parallel. Uh, And one of the problems is it starts with the money behind the business, because if the money is looking for a quick fix and is expecting 95% of their investments to tank, they, they don't have patience and you don't build a sustainable business Um, without patience and without uh, a tolerance for failure. Um, Because let's face it, a startup is a series of hopefully non-fatal experiments happening in parallel. Um, More often than not, because you're overstretching, you're taking on too much Um, and you're getting ahead of yourself. You're not finding a market fit. You're coming up with a great solution to um, a mousetrap I mean, um, unless you have a cat uh, or you live in a slum, chances are you probably won't have mice. Um, you know, if you keep it clean um, and whatever, the odds are mice aren't going to be a problem. Until I had a cat, we didn't have a mouse problem. <laughs> but I just released a bird in the kitchen, uh, but uh, I'm ranting. Um, so where was I? Um,
0: in terms of what's broken and the fix. Yeah,
1: so a wicked problem. So there are some rules. The first rule is that whatever you try first won't work. So learn from it, capture the data, apply, apply rinse and repeat. And um, second thing is, and um, the rules change as you go. The third is that stakeholders differ. They differ in who they are and what they want, and they change their minds along the way. And there are no perfect solutions, only imperfect outcomes. So when you accept that, And you see it as um, your job to keep uh, the game going rather than to win or lose. And in keeping the game going, you make the pie bigger so everyone has a bigger slice. It means that all of a sudden you can start working with your competition. And you can have pre-competitive alliances or you can be in co-opetition. You can work with strategic allies. Um, A phenomenal example of this is a guy called uh, Simon Severino, Um, If you want to scale your business, he is absolutely your man. Um, Last year, with eight employees, he took on 5,500 brand-new clients with whom he was able to deliver a delightful service with an average spend of two to €21,000. Wow. Wow, indeed. Now, what does that teach me? Well, that teaches me that you can sell hot instead of selling cold by using strategic alliances. Now, when you consider that the average SDR, someone who is hammering the phones, trying to book demos and meetings, uh, is productive in the role that you pay them for, for an average of three minutes out of 480 every day, and you have Simon juxtaposed at the other end of the spectrum, I begin to wonder, is there not some insanity in leadership? So then I question, why, why do leaders behave in the way that they do? Well, they behave in the way they do because of how they're paid, how they're measured, and how they are hired and fired. So that's a factor of culture. The culture of the money permeates the culture of the organization. So you need to find good, patient money that is forgiving of making mistakes and willing to let you experiment.
0: Which is why you take the view, and I've heard you say, that raising investment isn't all it's cracked up to be if... You're under the cost to get results as fast as possible, which could impact how sustainable the business is in the long term.
1: Well, let me let me uh, posit an alternative. Mm-hmm. What if you could scale at pace without loss of control and without incurring the headcount, without incurring the uh, overhead, without incurring all the risk? And you only ever sell hot.
0: And just for people listening, can you just explain what you mean by sell hot? Do you mean highly qualified leads?
1: What I mean is if you, Sarah, recommended I speak to someone, we've built a relationship. Ah, Yeah, Okay. Um, And if you recommended somebody speak to me or I speak to them, I would delightfully 100% make or take that call. Because we have intimacy. We have trust. I Well, I certainly from my side, I trust you. I'm pretty sure I'm shady as shit. Um, <laughs> um, there's no way you can trust me. Um, so uh, at least it's one way. It, it, it feels like unrequited love. Um, and so the, the challenge here is how do we reach a point where if you can introduce me to people and I've got 100% probability of meeting them, and you only ever introduce me to cracking, superb people who are timely, who are relevant. And if they're not quite timely, you can absolutely see why you made the introduction. Whose credibility builds, where in my, in my eyes, as the customer,
0: uh, the person who introduced you, and and the and the person that you're talking to,
1: the person who you're introducing borrows that credibility. Yeah. They take on your shine, Yeah. don't diminish yours, but they just add to it by taking it on for themselves because they borrow your credibility. Now that reduces friction. So in my experience, and again, you tell me, what's the probability that if um, someone you were close to, really close to in business, brought you a solution to a problem that you knew you had and you trusted the other person, the the introducee, and they could help you, and you were convinced of that, and you could afford it, what's the probability that you would buy it?
0: hundred percent, and and you're absolutely right. They're the easiest sales (coughs) conversations in the world. When people, when my clients introduce people to me to help them, there's no selling involved. They've sold themselves pretty much before they come and speak to you. I think if if that, that... in my experience, I mean, in my small narrow experience, that's absolutely true.
1: Where most people spend their time selling is for the people just on audio, um, it's a quadrant of four quadrants. um, In the bottom left is expensive brute force and that's selling into your cold market and trying to grow your business. And so there's you in the middle with a bunch of spokes going out um, to uh, cold prospects. Now on average, you're closed roughly one in 20 of those buying cycles started cold. Um, And compared with a warm introduction, which is the bottom right, um, where you're being referred into by someone who doesn't necessarily have a vested interest, um, but there's mutual respect between you and the other person and the buyer. Um, and so that's about a one in six conversion rate. Whereas when we're talking about selling hot, i.e., the kind of relationship that Sarah and I were describing a moment ago, and um, that's a seventy to ninety percent probability that the person will buy, if it's timely, it's relevant, and affordable. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's that's cool. Yeah, that's, that's cool. cool.
1: If you sell through partners through strategic alliances people who sell to the same audience that you do but don't naturally compete or do compete but in a different segment. And then you can do something like a dead lead swap, for example. So you and I sell to an identical space, but you sell to the top end and I send send to the middle and bottom and you never touch them. Well, if you've met somebody, then swap those leads with me and I'll – refer the enterprise ones because I'm not going to do anything with them either. So I may as well refer them on. And then I can contact Bob and I can say, Bob, have you managed to solve your problem with X yet? And if he says no, look, I've been thinking about you. There's somebody I want you to meet, close competitor of mine, works in a slightly different space, so I think better suited to where you were. Um, Why don't you have a meet with Sarah? And now I just tee you up. Brilliant. We both... (laughs) Get the credibility from it, and they get a win.
0: And it is a completely different way of looking at things, isn't it? It is. It is around, you know, a, a collaborative and longer-term relationship building um, to get results than the quick, you know, hit them hard, sell, 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 and and then and then like perhaps get the refund like you did with the piping. <laughs> you know?
1: Yes. Yeah. Part of the problem, though, is it's it's not the salesperson's fault. They they don't know any better. Yeah, You've got six big competitors: fear, apathy, ignorance, denial, status quo, and ego. Now, ignorance is the most forgivable. You just don't know. That's cool. Once you do know, then it's a sin.
0: Yes. Right?
1: Yeah, the, the cat's out the bag now. So you can't say you don't know any better. You've chosen not to. Um, And the the hard road is the easy road, and the easy road is the hard road. So you've got to make tough decisions. You need to be rigorously authentic as a manager, as a leader, as a seller. Um, As a customer, I think you need to be rigorously authentic. But again, you're taught by bad salespeople to hold your cards close to your chest, to be defensive, to be protective, to not quite give all the information, to be economical with the truth to lie. You had to try your chance, your arm, to try your hand. Why? Because salespeople, bad salespeople have educated you to do that. Because yeah. you know that if you flinch when they give you a price, most of them will cave and they'll give you a an discount. And then if you flinch again, they'll give another one. Then they'll speak to their manager. They'll give you some cracking deal. Yeah. If your price is your price and you never offer discounts, then they know where the boundary is.
0: Yeah. Discounting it is a, a race to the bottom, isn't it? Absolutely. Cool. There's some brilliant stuff in there. And um, one of the things that I was going to ask you was one of the nom de plume that you go by in business is chief revenue officer. And I didn't know what that was, being honest. It, I hadn't come across it in my corporate it life. But,
1: title, if I'm <laughs> gonna but it, it does encapsulate what it should. Um, because uh, where Uh, About 40 years ago, Milton (laughs) Friedman, uh, Satan's lieutenant, um, came up with the big lie. And the big lie is that companies exist to serve shareholder value. That is a lie. Let me put this into context. These are speculators, gamblers, who have chosen to risk their money by investing in a venture which they probably don't give a damn about whether it fails or succeeds. They just want three out of the 50 to make it
0: Mm.
1: because three out of the 50 makes the economics for them and their investors work. You are a product. Okay. You are a cash crop for investors. The most important people are your people. And this is seems uh, to be at odds with the idea that the most important uh, people are the customer everything that we do is centered around the buyer the buyer is at the heart of everything we do every job description has a window to the customer but if you want happy customers you have to have happy and highly engaged people working in your business and happy and highly engaged partners happy partners happy customers now one partner is actually the worth of 12, 50, 500 customers. So you should really love your apartments.
0: Yeah, and I think you know you and I spoke before about this uh, when we were just sort of chatting, and I saw this time and time again this idea that you've got to you know the shareholders are the number one leads to you know dissonance, uh, incongruence between. You know, there's the people in the organization trying to have an engaged, happy workforce. But if your main focus is the shareholders, you're never going to be able to achieve that. And I see so many times people saying stuff and and not walking the talk. You know, it doesn't happen because of this short term, you know, bonus led culture.
1: And so what does that do in the reliability and credibility uh, operators? Um, what does it do to them in the trust equation?
0: Yeah, it breaks trust, you know, internally and, and then eventually out externally when, you know, when staff don't care, that it then passes on to the customer, the end user.
1: So a quick plug for uh, Hal Cruttenden's latest news: uh, Netflix uh, called Subster. Absolutely brilliant. And the reason for it is the callbacks at the end. He just does a barrage of them at the end. And they are spectacularly funny. It's just this rolling crescendo of funnier and funnier and funnier. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because what's broken here is that the irony is you could deliver massive value to the shareholders so much more if only you weren't a total monster if you didn't treat your people like a utility or a commodity that could be burnt through, if you didn't treat your people um, in such a way that you put them under pressure so that they could uh, waste literally thousands of calls um, by bringing forward opportunities so that you can meet an arbitrary and utterly irrelevant uh, deadline for quarter end so that you can fiddle the valuation. So you can report back to the vultures that have thrown their money at you. Um, so that 89% of companies that are invested in or higher, I think actually, it might be 95%, uh, tank and go nowhere. So that's thousands upon thousands of lives, livelihoods, homes, marriages, relationships with kids destroyed in the in the pursuit of greed instead of actually enabling them to do their job right. Mm-hmm. So this then begs the question, where can you apply the least amount of force for the greatest amount of output within your organization that will drive sales and performance and customer retention and um, you know, employee retention and uh, earnings per employee and earnings per share will drive all of those things positively.
0: And is that essentially the role of the chief revenue officer to look for those, for those opportunities to bring that all together?
1: That was your question. Um, well, let me answer the question I was answering first. Uh, it's the management layer. And the management layer, the, the chief revenue officer, is their job is to align anything that has to do with revenue generation. Um, And um, so that's marketing, lead gen, sales, customer success, customer complaints. I mean, who on earth came up with the idea that there should be a department for customer happiness? Isn't that everybody's job? You'd think. (laughs) But the customer's become this forgotten afterthought, the end of this long chain of abuse. And I keep coming back to Satan's Lieutenant, Milton Friedman. The idea of creating that part of the problem is that um, many of the people who decided uh, to do uh, performance um, led sales, um, which is what this is all about, it's performance driven sales, um, decided that they would turn all of this humanity into a machine. And they took their inspiration from the first few chapters of Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, where he was talking about the division of labor. And the problem is that most of the people who read that book got to the good bits where they thought pin factory, break it down into its component parts, specialize. Yeah. Um, But they didn't get to the end because actually Smith tells them it's not a good idea because it dehumanizes. But no one ever reads the end, because it's a boring, thick old tome.
0: So yeah. they miss the, the point of the whole
1: thing. And the point being that you can, but you, what you're doing is you're sacrificing effectiveness for efficiency. You're sacrificing the experience of the customer for your own selfish self-interest. Now, in the trust equation, low self-orientation is the biggest factor in determining how high trust gets. Now, you can't be a doormat. Mm. You need to be able to establish boundaries. And that's one of the definitions um, that we wrote in uh, Making Channel Sales Work about partnership. Partners help each other get better. That means that they enter into constructive conflict. They challenge each other. When they're going to do something stupid or self-sabotaging, they challenge them. They confront them. They're they're not afraid to um, say what they see and coach what they see which is why things like operational coaching and having um, tools to deliver micro coaching moments that can be done at a time that are convenient, because one of the big reasons why uh, managers say they don't have time to coach is they think coaching has to be set aside um, you know, for an hour. Um, and there has to be all this protection all this other stuff. Actually, operational coaching is fabulously powerful. Micro coaching is fabulously powerful. Operational coaching is where one of the in that story. You remember the story of yeah. the Royal Mail. Yeah. well In that story, there was a moment where he realised sixteen to twenty times a day, there was an opportunity to teach somebody something, uh, ask an insightful, inspirational question that gets them to believe in their own capability and to go off and find it and tap into that resource. Now, all of a sudden, what we're tapping into is discretionary effort. Now, how powerful is that? If we have discretionary effort from people who are highly engaged, love what they do, consider the work that they're doing important and meaningful. They're looking out for each other's backs. They're supporting, they're confronting each other where necessary. And they're challenging each other. They're growing. It's the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl and they're doing this with common purpose. Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to create the conditions for mutually assured success. Yeah, Isn't that a healthier place? Now, if you do that, what's interesting is that share price growth, where companies had highly engaged, a high degree of highly engaged employees, outstripped the, the rest of the market in the S&P 500 by 316% per annum over a six-year period. Now, you do the maths on that compound growth. That is a shed load. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Being mean and miserly and, um, you know, this, uh, you know, crack the whip, numbers game, uh, be a, a bit of an ass, that's uneconomical. It's bad business. It's terrible business.
0: And and essentially self sabotage. What you're saying yeah. is, you know, shooting yourself in the foot,
1: really. It's it, it's the stupidity of willy waving. Yeah, D- D- Dickens said it more eloquently than me, which is the the, the loud uh, the empty vessel makes the most noise. Yeah. Um, and they do. They crow about their victories and their they, they don't make other people the hero. They don't call other people out. They're not um, they're not humble. There's nothing that teaches you humility like a customer who's not happy. And there's nothing that teaches you uh, humility than where you've let somebody down when you've given your word and you live by your word. And this is the integrity piece. That's what's, that's really key. People can't trust you unless you show up and you do what you say you're going to do in the manner and time that you said you would. And there are no, there's no artifice. There's no, Uh, self-serving self-interest yes you get your needs met by helping other people to get their needs met too it's Emerson's law of compensation Ralph Waldo not the other one
0: yeah (laughs) cool that's brilliant okay so now I'm going to ask you one more I think question because I think it's important and it's slightly adjacent to what we're talking about so when we spoke before you told me and I've heard this before and I feel I possibly fall in this camp too. Quite often when we're in business, we have a subconscious ceiling or unconscious ceiling that we put on our income. And, and we will have a really, let's say a really successful month and then, or year or whatever. And then something we self sabotage to bring it back to what we feel comfortable with, even though we we don't know we're doing it. You experienced that, I think. And how did you overcome it?
1: And it, this is something called money concept. Mm. Yeah, how you conceptualise money is really important. The 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 weight you associate with it, the value you attribute to it, your right to it, the use you're going to put to it. All of this is really, really integral. And as a salesperson, if you can't talk about money confidently, freely, without judgment, without reservation, without limit, then you will hit a ceiling. I I remember when I was in recruitment, I averaged maybe 30 grand in billings a month. And uh, that was cool. One month, I did 96. And for the next four months, I couldn't close my own fly. (laughs) nothing i said or did worked and then i did, you know i adjusted back to the my average and then i did it off we went yeah and you just think how stupid is that well there's a little voice the narrative in your head if you don't understand the narrative in your head and if if you've if you're familiar with a program called no guts no gains David Sandler developed this, I think it's their best material, um, and it's, really, it's, it's packaged as an assertiveness training course. Um, but what's really interesting is it takes you through this journey of discovery about um, your beliefs and boundaries and uh, where you uh, have rights and where you don't, and your inner dialogue and uh, how to establish uh, equal stature with other people. It's incredibly liberating. And for me, that was seven years into my my journey um, learning how to sell. And it was the most important material, and it was never shown to me. I had to accidentally discover it by rifling through a box for something else. For me, um, that's been the biggest part of my journey. It's the realization of where... Um, And there's a a quote from Anais Nin. quoting child pornographers, not really my thing. Um, But she said something really profound, which is we don't see the world as it is. Uh, We see the world world as we are. Mm. Um, Something along those lines. Now, we bring baggage and filters and values and expectations and judgments and prejudices and our history and our culture and our socioeconomic background and the things that we feel deprived about and our victimhood all to the table and so does the other person and that's just with two of you so imagine just how totally screwed up it is in families yeah that philip larkin poem this be the verse they fuck you up your mum and dad they don't mean to but they do they fill you with all the faults they had and add some extra just for you that is one of the smartest bits of observation of the human condition you will ever read yeah, Mark Twain, another fabulous observer of the human condition. When you realize the whole world is mad, everything makes sense. <laughs> it is
0: these shackles that are passed down from generation to generation, isn't it?
1: Now, now you've got me. Because one of the w- things about wicked problems is you have to look upstream. And where you look upstream is what you're looking for is those struggling moments. But what you're also looking for is the confluence of two, three, or four of these struggling moments happening together because if you start to tackle it at that point in the buyer's journey then it starts to have a ripple a flywheel effect in your own organization so by the time they get to that point the chains are too strong to break and now your people are doing the right things yeah so there's not enough introspection sales people don't do it nearly enough managers don't do nearly enough and leaders don't do nearly enough and um, I'm pretty sure that if investors did, they'd probably not like the reflection in the mirror. I always love that
0: in terms of this sort of concept is everything that you, are you know, that everyone knows about like the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg is what you see about yourself and you've got everything else underneath. But all of that stuff that you talked about is like you're the projector onto a cinema screen and you're all that stuff, therefore, projects what you the world looks like to you and what's possible for you. Um, until you start dealing with it,
1: and it also determines what gets reflected back. Yeah, because remember, the message received is the one that matters, not the one that was sent. Yeah, I might have written that email in a jokey fashion, and you might have read it because you got out of the wrong side of bed. Yeah, and now all of a sudden, that's World War Three in the offing. Because you'll start, you'll strike back. I'll think, bloody hell, what's wrong with her? I'll show her. And then before you know, it, World War has broken out. Yeah, absolutely. That's how stupid we are as a species. So what most people do, there's a formula for emotions. Okay. Um, Prejudices, negative expectations and negative preferences as compared with through your drama, as compared with the reality as you perceive it, equals an emotional reaction. Okay. Now there's a smart version. And the smart version is instead of operating out that drama triangle, victim, persecutor, rescuer, okay? You operate out of the winner's triangle, vulnerable, nurturing and empathic and assertive. And now the formula is different. Instead of prejudice, negative expectation, negative preference, I want you to fail, yeah? Or I expect you to fail because women can't park, yeah? Um, Salespeople are all pushy scum. Whatever bias and stereotype we bring, yeah, we'll filter it. Now, with this one, instead, there is no prejudice, no pre-judgment. And then you bring positive expectation, positive preference, as compared with the reality as you perceive it, equals a rational response as opposed to an emotional reaction. And that's a very different kettle of fish. Now it's a choice. It's conscious. It's intentional. Yeah. This is how you become the manager that chooses to make that legacy coaching the generation that follows you to be great managers, because you've created the apprenticeship, the roadmap for them. You've equipped them to learn how to be great coaches before they do the job, instead of throwing them in at the deep end and having them spend 17 years or 30 years not knowing how to do it. What a waste. Brilliant.
0: Cool. Lots of wisdom there. I think I might have to have you back on the show in the future, Mark, I've got more questions, but we haven't okay. got time today. Definitely. Um, but what I want, to, this is the speaking club. So one sort of final question I wanted to ask you is how do you use speaking and storytelling to grow your business or even stretch that out further to advise? Do you advise organizations to use them to grow theirs?
1: All, all the time. Um, but I'm constantly uh, using story. I'm picking up stories. I want customer stories. I don't want my stories. I want their stories. I want them to be the hero in their own story. Um, and the more stories I tell, I, I remember interviewing Mike Bosworth, who wrote um, you know, the Bible for many people, solution selling. And he realized a decade into running his business, that there was something called um, discovery resistance. And And he started to observe that the best way to break discovery resistance, and discovery resistance is where people are reluctant to open up. The best way was to tell a really powerful 10-second story. So, Sarah, let let me tell you the the reason I'm calling. Sales Driven is a small business started about 10 months ago. They're growing at 200% a quarter at the moment from a very small start to, by the end of this year, they're probably going to be around 600 K. Now, enough about them. Let's talk about you. Yeah. There are only two responses to that. Typically. I mean, it's not a great example, but there are only two responses. One is, hang on a second. You seem to have missed out quite a big chunk of that story. Uh, or they'll start telling you, yeah, that's exactly what we want to do. Or they'll tell you to boil your head. Fine.
0: Yeah. And this is a brilliant uh, little example of using curiosity to get past that. We t- You talked about the, the sort of reptile brain and getting past that reptile brain. Yeah. And curiosity works, I think, actually is better than fear in terms of getting people to pay attention.
1: Let, let me make a point about this. For years, for 18 years, I was teaching people pain outsells gain by 12 to 1. And I still hold to that. The problem is, no one wants to spend their life running away from pain and fear. Okay, I mean, there was a really interesting example. A company selling uh, utilities door to door. Down one side, they were saying, um, if you save, if you buy from us today, uh, you'll uh, save 20, uh, fifty cents um, a day. On the other side of the road, they said, if you uh, you'll lose fifty cents a day if you don't buy from us. And if you buy from us, you'll make 50 cents a day. The converse rate was five times higher with the away from strategy rather than towards. Mm. We know that fear and pain definitely push people towards a decision, but it's not one they want. It's not one that they're committed to, motivated to continue with. It's just to get away from the agony. Mm. Okay, so you need to build that better future for them. You have to help them understand that there is that pathway. So you create tension in the first part of the sale and help them realize the the gap between where they want to be and where they are now. So this is future pacing. And and that's helping them see themselves as a hero in their own story. Imagine how good that could get. And then um, you start to build value. Now, most people only sell shallow. So they talk about features and functionality and benefits, which is what I think you will value. What I need to do is I need to get a, give you a clear pathway, a hopeful pathway towards a better future. And in order for that better future to even be table stakes, to get your attention away from the status quo, it needs to be 12 times 12x better than the status quo option. Otherwise, you can't make that intellectual leap because you won't let go of what you've got. Yeah? yeah story helps me to do that metaphor helps me to do that
0: that's brilliant I did a a whole episode recently I'll put a link in the show notes to it as well just in case you haven't heard it uh to what whatever what we can learn from Ebenezer Scrooge because Dickens does future pacing brilliantly with
1: (laughs) with Scrooge I'd love Uh, to see that yes please yeah
0: it's a really great example of future pacing and and that's what we should be doing in our talks
1: and sales and so on to, to build on that, let me uh, recommend Chapter Two of Tom Sawyer. No matter what you think, read Chapter Two of Tom Sawyer uh, because it's Mark Twain uh, teaching you the. It's the best example of great salesmanship you will ever read in print.
0: Oh, I should check that out.
1: Brilliant! White whitewashing the fence scene. Do not watch the videos on YouTube because none of them do it justice.
0: Brilliant. I will. I will check that out. Listen, Marcus. Thank you so much. Now I've got some standard questions to ask you before we talk about how people can find out more about you. Where's the best place to get in touch? Um, the first question is, what's the best thing
1: that speaking has done for you? Help me get to speak to other people. Now, my, my I, I don't do a huge amount of public speaking. I do a lot of podcasting and meeting really fascinating people my mind has expanded in ways uh, the solutions I'm bringing to the table now I could never have given to, uh, de- developed two years ago so for me that's the biggest gift
0: brilliant and it's it's very true and podcasting is speaking it's still it's still speaking so absolutely just a different type of audience different medium uh, second question have you Ever had a speaking gig or presentation that you've done that just went really badly? You went, oh no, I just want to forget about that.
1: Yeah, I'm sure I have. I mean, there've there, there been some very lack, lackluster ones, and you come off and you feel deflated and think that was a lot of effort for nothing. Uh, but it's on me. I mean, know, yeah, it's my it's my responsibility to turn up, uh, and uh, what I, I always, you know, I used to go to a conference of so about 350 people. Uh, Let's say they're meant to be earning 200 grand a pop, which they were. Um, So in order to do that, uh, they need to be generating about, it's gonna be about hundred dollars an hour. So I've got to generate hundred dollars an hour times 350. If I haven't done that, that's on me. So I always used to treat it as a learning exercise. So you lean into those things. Absolutely,
0: get back on the horse and carry on. Okay, next question. What's the book that's had most impact on your life and why?
1: On my life, um, Man's Search for Meaning was won by Viktor Frankl um, because it was the realisation that liberty and freedom are different. So the choices that I make are down to how I respond uh, to a situation rather than so the consequences of those choices are on me. Um, just the Listen by Mark Goldston has been a pop, absolutely amazing. And um, the road less stupid by Keith Cunningham is a fabulous book. Wish I'd written it.
0: Brilliant! Um, that's fantastic. So, what's the best place? Where's the best place for people to go to find out more about you and what you do?
1: LinkedIn. Um, I'm one of only two Marcus Calkeys as a pretender down in Essex. Um, lovely young chap in recruitment uh, who's got the same name. Um, the Inquisitor, the underscore Inquisitor on uh, Twitter. And the Inquisitor podcast on Apple, Podbean, Link, Listen Notes, and whatever. And I post lots of content, and I'm a bit gobby. <laughs> Brilliant. Well,
0: we'll put the links to that in the show notes as well. Marcus Kauke, thank you so much for sharing all that great stuff today. Really appreciate it and your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sarah.
0: What did you think about that? Marcus is clearly passionate about sales as a force for good. And I love he's, you know, he's so um, down to earth and calls a spade a spade with it as well. He doesn't pull his punches, does he? And the way he thinks about the whole thing is also fascinating. And I loved the point that he made. And I think this is something that we can take away as as, as customers as well is that and both sellers and customers have to be rigorously authentic. And, and he's right that we as customers often aren't open about what we want or we're playing the game as much as the salespeople are playing the game in terms of trying to force the price down. You know, But if we do that and if we keep our cards close to our chest, then we're never going to get the problem solved in the way that we want or that's best for us. So uh, if you resonated with Marcus, then do go and check out his podcast, The Inquisitor and all of his stuff and connect with him on LinkedIn. I know he'd love that. And yeah, that's brilliant. So I hope you got a lot out of that uh, interview. I know that I did. I really enjoyed it. Uh, As ever, if you are a regular listener and you get value from the show, would you do me a favor by taking a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. Okay, thank you so much again for joining me and I will be back again next week to give you some more speaking and marketing tools, tips and inspiration. In the meantime, you know the score. Don't you forget to go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. Getting to practice your speaking in front of an audience is a crucial part of testing your message and developing your skills and experience as a speaker. Yet opportunities to do this in the right environment can be hard to find. Add in the chance to get expert feedback and coaching on your content structure and delivery and the opportunities are even fewer. But that's what you'll get as a member of the Speaking Club Live each week we'll be focusing on a different aspect of business speaking from pitching to presenting to videos and lives there'll be hot speak slots and you'll get the chance to practice sharing your message your storytelling your humor and all the different aspects of speaking in front of me and other members then you'll get feedback and coaching from me and your peers so that you're moving forward on your speaking journey with accountability and support If you'd like to find out more about how you can become a member of the Speaking Club Live so that you can build your confidence, improve your delivery and become a better speaker, then go to saraharcher.co.uk slash club now.